The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to a very refreshing hour of business talk. This is HR Trends with Game Changers, presented by SAP. The best-run businesses run SAP. You'll hear from the innovators who know how to use game-changing technologies and strategies to shake up the status quo in human resources and help your organization move in exciting new directions. Now, here's your host and moderator, Bonnie D. Graham. Welcome, welcome, welcome. And if you want to run with the Game Changers, you are in the right place. This is HR Trends with Game Changers. Today's buzz, culture. Ooh, big word. Yes, so let's get started. According to Peter Drucker, I know a lot of you have heard this phrase, culture eats strategy for breakfast. I ask you, our listeners, how do you start your business day? I know that's a loaded question. I'll tell you a little more about the Peter Drucker quote and what it meant to the Ford Motor Company back in 2006 through 2007. But that's a trivial trivial comment for later in the show. So let's get into our topic. Increasingly, companies today are seeing their workplace culture as fundamental to their business success. Yes, they're linked together. But if your organization's culture is not serving your business goals, are you thinking of changing it? And then you have to try to get your employees to embrace the changes. That could be a very daunting uphill challenge. So wouldn't it be wonderful if you could find out what companies that have done this successfully, they've climbed this mountain, climbed this scope, this slope, and they've gotten to work. They've gotten it to work. They've managed the culture change. They've managed to get their employees on board. I have a panel of three experts who are going to help us figure this out. They're going to give us their expertise, their insights. And by the end of the next 57 minutes, you should know more than you do right now about culture change. So let's get started. First up is Jacob Morgan. He's a principal of Chess media group and he sent me the following quote wow let me see one two three four five six seven seven little words they pack a punch work as we know it is dead wow jacob morgan welcome to hr trends with game changers how are you i'm doing well thanks for having me thanks for joining us so tell me uh, these are certainly sound like they're words from a mountain high up somewhere so what part of work is dead and what does this all mean to our topic today jacob Sure. Yeah. I mean, as they say, them be fighting words. So uh, um, that's right. Yeah, I, my my belief is firmly that work as we know it today is dead, and there are a lot of ways that we can explain that. Um, but I, I think probably the easiest way is if we look at a dictionary. And what I mean by that is, if you look up synonyms for uh, the word work, you'll find words like uh, drudgery and struggle and daily grind. If you look up synonyms for the word manager, you'll find things like slave driver or zookeeper. And if you look up synonyms for words like employee, you'll find cog, servant, or slave. And so what I mean when I say work as we know it is dead, it is that defining employee, manager, and the word work in those ways is completely dead. Employees are no longer cogs, managers are no longer Mm -hmm. slave drivers, and work doesn't need to be uh, about drudgery. And so a lot of the way that we've built our organizations over the last 100, 150-plus years has been built on top of that notion that employees are expendable, 
that managers are like that guy from Office Space that comes by asking you for your TPS reports, and that we all have to sit in cubicles and work nine to five. And that is a notion of work that is completely dead, right? That is, that is no longer what work is about. We're now seeing a shift where employees are being more engaged and empowered at work. We're seeing managers that are now serving employees and helping remove obstacles out of their way. Uh, we're seeing employees caring about doing meaningful work. And work no longer has to be drudgery. And so, you know, that's what I mean when I say work as we know it is dead. We're seeing big, big shifts in three areas, and the three areas are how employees work, how managers lead, and how we structure and build our companies. I think you just summarized the whole show. Great introduction, Jacob. <laughs> Thank you. You know, you pulled up such impactful words from the old definitions. And I would say, I would venture to say, as culture is changing, as this notion of work in our day and age, and I'm not sure when this shift started, maybe we could talk about that later in the show, but I almost want to tweak your quote a little bit, Jacob Morgan at the Chess Media Group, and say, work as we knew it is dead, because I'm hoping that that vision of the slavery and the, the, the cubicles and the mindless people as the cogs in that never-ending grind drudgery wheel, that that is a thing of the past. So maybe we can put that to bed. Thank you, Jacob. Great introduction. Let me bring on our second panelist. She's a return guest here on SAP Game Changers Radio. Her name is Sarah Cook. She's an associate VP and managing consultant at Great Place to Work. And boy, isn't that what we're aspiring to have in this conversation, Great Places to Work. Sarah Cook sent me the following quote from Professor Edgar Schein at the MIT Sloan School of Management. Here's the quote, and then Sarah will tell me more about it. It's in most organizational change efforts. It's much easier to draw on the strengths of the culture than to overcome the constraints by changing the culture. Sarah Cook, how are you today? Good morning. I'm wonderful. Thanks for having me back. Oh, wonderful to speak with you. So, Sarah, where'd you get this quote from Edgar Schein? Sounds very pithy, if I can use that word. And he's saying, sounds <laughs> well, like he's saying, don't change it, just find the strengths. So how well does this work in the real world? Talk to me, Sarah. Uh, it does work in the real world, and I happened to see Dr. Shine just about six weeks ago um, here in Silicon Valley for an evening, and that was lovely, and, and he was espousing all kinds of beautiful things like this, even did an exercise where he had half of us blindfolded for a while. So he's still still at it, still doing his thing, and um, this quote is, is highlighting a shift from a focus that we've had uh, in the U.S. particularly, but all over the world around change management that's been deficit-focused, and instead wanting to be strengths-based. So your culture, which is living and breathing in every interaction that happens in your organization, despite policies, despite declarations of intent, has strengths in it, and those strengths can be leveraged even to go after those items that you think are your weaknesses. And so I hope throughout the day, the call today that we'll be talking about um, more opportunities for me to highlight how you would actually do that as you uh, try to make uh, improvements in your organization and go after a new strategy or bring in a different business unit that you didn't have in the past. Thank you, Sarah. Also, great start to our topic, and I'm going to round out the panel with Deb Stambaugh. She's a Senior Director of Talent Marketing at SAP, and here's a quote, and I hope I can pronounce the gentleman's name right, Tony Say. I'm going to see that if, if Deb agrees with the last name. Anyway, he's the CEO of Zappos. Everybody can pronounce Zappos. Here's the quote. If you get the culture right, most of the other stuff will just take care of itself. Deb Stambaugh, welcome to HR Trends. How are you today? 
I'm well, Bonnie. Thanks so much for having me. I'm happy to be here. Oh, pleasure. Finally glad to meet you. I've heard so many interesting and good things about you. So how did you pick the quote and how do we pronounce this gentleman's last name, well, Deb? Help Tony me out Shea. here. Well, um, okay. And I'm a big fan of, um, of Tony Shea simply because he really took such a simple idea and crafted it into something amazing. And what I would dare say is that, you know, especially for Zappos and I think a lot of other companies that are really trying to look at the power of their culture and how can they leverage that and harness that a bit to what Sarah was talking about is that, you know, culture is more than just behavior. Culture needs to drive not only your passion, right, for within your organization, but really should be synonymous with, with strategy. And I think that's what Zappos has done an amazing job with. They are all about customer service. And you can see that in everything they do from their values to if you've ever interacted with Zappos, you know, to, to that kind of um, – to that interaction. I'm not here to do a, a commercial for them, but at the <laughs> same time, what I would say, I'm obviously a fan, um, yes. is that, you know, they've been able to take that notion of culture and what's important to them from a cultural perspective and make that a strategic differentiator, where their closest competitor, which are Foot Locker and JCPenney Online and those kind of organizations, can't compete, right? Because it really comes down to what is the essence of that organization. And the essence of that organization is customer service. That's what's the most important. That's the foundation of their strategy. And so what I would say is that when you, you know, I completely agree with Mr. Shea, when you get culture right and you can, that can drive actually everything else in your organization. It can drive prioritization. It can drive reprioritization. It can allow you to say no to the right things. Oh, that's an interesting and very provocative statement. Deb, I have a question for you before I circle back and, and sure. give the whole panel a very provocative question. The way you're describing culture to me sounds like it's synonymous with brand. How do your people represent the company? How do they yeah. buy into what you're all about? Is that a fair statement? Well, I absolutely, yeah, I think that's an absolutely fair statement. And I, I, I think all of these things go hand in hand because at the end of the day, your people are your brand. So if your people believe in your culture, they're representing your brand on the outside world. And that those things need to be the same thing internally and externally. You can't have a different face that you try to put to the outside, outside world mm-hmm. and a different face on the in, inside of your organization. If those two things are a mismatch, you're going to find inauthenticity and people are going to find you out real quick. Thank you. Very good points all. I appreciate it. I have a very tough question for the whole panel, and you can do a little name dropping if you wish. The question is, what's in your cup today, or what do you wish you were drinking? And the reason for that, those of you new to the show, is that this is part of our flagship series called Coffee Break with Game Changers, hence the coffee cup logo. So let's circle back to Jacob Morgan at Chess Media Group. And Jacob, in the next segment, we'll ask you a little bit about what Chess Media Group does. But Jacob, what are you drinking? Tell me something interesting, or what do you wish was in your cup? Go ahead. Sure. Unfortunately, I'm not a coffee drinker. So even though it is a, a coffee break and you get the coffee mug logo, I... Uh, I'm naturally hyper, so I, I stay away from coffee, <laughs> otherwise that would be dangerous. Um, I'm a tea guy, so usually in the mornings I'll either have a cup of Darjeeling tea or a cup of Genmai Chai tea, which is a uh, green tea toasted with brown rice. Oh, nice. I, I sense a kinship between you and me, Jacob. I only allow myself a cup or two of decaf that has to say in big letters, decaf, at home on a Keurig machine because I don't trust restaurants to serve me decaf. Yes, they don't let me have caffeine. They say, Bonnie, no caffeine on radio show days. You will find out why. Thank you, Jacob. I fully agree. Sarah Cook, what are you drinking today or what do you wish? 
Uh, well, this morning my train was running just a little bit later than usual, so it's a wish for me. <laughs> I okay. don't have anything in my cup today, but I normally stop at Project Juice, which is in between my BART station and my office, and I will go there right after this call. And they have a lovely green drink that has jalapeno and lime in it, so it's got a little zip for the morning, and I think it's a great way to start every day. You are a brave lady. Jalapeno <laughs> and lime in the morning. Jacob, comment on that. What do you think? Quick. I think jalapeno and lime is awesome. I'm also based in the Bay Area, so I might have to talk to her afterwards and find out uh, where this place is and go try one myself. <laughs> I think we need to give Sarah a little commission here, a little selling commission. <laughs> Deb exactly. Stambaugh. Deb, what are you drinking or what do you wish? What's going to come in the cup after the show or what's in it right now? Talk to me. Well, I always have two, Bonnie. One is always a big cup of water because I need to stay hydrated. The other, with uh, three kids, the youngest being two years old, I am having my caffeinated coffee. So it is a black coffee with one Splenda, no blue, no pink packs, just the yellow. Ooh, okay. Thanks for the uh, branding specificity there. I appreciate that. I'm going to give my panels working very hard already. It sounds like they're having a good time. This is HR Trends with Game Changers. We are live. It's Tuesday, May 27, 2014, the day after the U.S. Memorial Day holiday. Hope everybody had a good, relaxing, and meaningful Memorial Day if you're here in the U.S. I'm speaking today with Jacob Morgan at the Chess Media Group, Sarah Cook at Great Place to Work, and everybody wishes they could say that, and Deb Stambaugh at SAP. Yes, we can. I'm Bonnie D. Gray, and we have a lot more when we come back. Our topic today is driving culture change. Easier said than done. I'm going to put a question mark on that title instead of just saying easier said than done, because I have a feeling my panel is going to help us figure out how to get it done. So there, we're tweeting today at hashtag SAP Radio. We have Mike G. Montalban. I know you can spell that. He's our tweeter extraordinaire. We've got a lot of other people tweeting as well. We'll be right back after the break with the roundtable, find out what's really going on on this topic. It's going to be 30 minutes nonstop, so I'm asking my panelists right now, put your seatbelt on. It's going to be a good ride. We'll be right back. Don't even think of touching that mouse, that app, that dial. Brad out. The business community's first choice in Internet talk radio. Voice America Business Network. With companies like yours competing aggressively for top talent today, HR tactics must be comprehensive and precise. Today's reality, your HR department is faced with the demands of a multi-generational and globalized workforce, diversity and inclusion policies, work-life integration challenges, and more. The bottom line, you need to attract and retain the best fit talent to support your strategies and goals, optimize your employee engagement, and become an industry-leading employer of choice. HR Trends with Game Changers is presented by SAP. Visit www.sap.com. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. You're enjoying HR Trends with Game Changers, presented by SAP. Email your comments and questions to bonnie.d.gram at sap.com. And you're invited to tweet during and after the live show at Twitter, hashtag SAPRADIO. Now, let's get back to HR Trends with Game Changers. 
Welcome back. We've got a packed house with Jacob Morgan at Chess Media Group, Sarah Cook at Great Place to Work, and Deb Stambaugh at SAP. I'm still Bonnie D. Graham. Happy to be here with a very important topic, driving culture change. Easier said than done. Question mark. I added that before the break. We're going to kick off our roundtable. We have a lot to talk about today. I'm going to ask Sarah Cook to get us started. Sarah, in your notes before the show, you sent me a very interesting statement. We're talking about culture. How do you change it? If you dare to change it, how do you get the buy-in? How do you make an effective change? So your comment is, even if your culture is far from desired, it is still reinforcing some behaviors that are beneficial. Sarah Cook, let's get started, please. Yeah, so that that statement is is alluding to the fact that culture is just naturally the way things get done. And that's a a really common strategy quote uh, out there that I I don't remember who the person is now, but I'll look it up later. Um, And so culture is the way things get done. So that's working view. Your company exists today. It uh, has survived over a period of time. So some of the things that that culture is reinforcing are positives. They're being successful. So you don't want to completely throw out the baby with the bathwater, as people say. You want to look at what is a strength, what's an opportunity to grow upon, or let's even take a a look at things that might have gone too far. You know, every strength has, you know, if it's it's applied too intensely, becomes a negative. One example Mm -hmm. of that you'll see in companies is uh, collaboration. And collaboration is a really big challenge that companies are trying to do better and trying to become more innovative through collaboration. They're often siloed. However, some companies go so far that they become consensus-driven. And all of a sudden, everything takes about a year to make a decision. And that can be a problem as well. And so you have the opportunity both to look for those items that – are strengths that you should be continuing to keep and perhaps building and highlighting, shining a light on, and then also looking at those strengths that have gone too far and figuring out how to dial them back. The beauty about strengths that have gone too far is your company knows how to work in that way. So, for example, Mm -hmm. let's say your company is very hierarchical. That could be a real problem for you if you're trying to be innovative, you're trying to move quickly, but... You know your company knows how to work that way. Your people are successful that way. They get it. And so if Mm -hmm. you're trying to roll out, let's say, an innovation program, you might find ways to make that somewhat hierarchical or have clear ownership or clear decision points that echo what you experienced in this other item that you've been very successful at. And through that mirroring of processes, it will be easier for your organization to adapt. Knowing thyself is a critically important step to being successful. Thank you, Sarah. I'm going to ask Jacob and Deb to chime in, but first I want to mention something in my research today before the show. I found a website, a blog written by Marshall Goldsmith, who has been a board member of the Peter Drucker Foundation, harking back to our our opening segment, Uh, and he says, one of the greatest lessons Peter Drucker taught him, and I'll quote, we spend a lot of time helping leaders learn what to do. We do not spend enough time teaching leaders what to stop. Half of the leaders I have met don't need to learn what to do. They need to learn what to stop. That sounds like it's right on point with what you mentioned, Sarah. Would you agree with that? Mm-hmm, absolutely. Okay. Yeah, I want to bring Jacob into this conversation. And Deb, Jacob, you have comments on Know Thyself from Sarah Cook. Let's get started with you. Sure. Well, I think uh, probably the best way to respond, there, there's a, an interesting story um, from the CEO of a company called ING Direct Canada, which just recently re- rebranded to being called Tangerine. And they have around uh, uh, just over a thousand people, and the CEO of the company is named Peter Aceto. It's uh, A C E T O is his last name. 
Okay. And uh, I did an, an interview with him for a, a book I have coming out uh, later this year. And one of the fascinating things about Peter is that as the CEO of a company, he used to be a typical manager, right? He didn't show emotion at work. He was very stoic. He uh, didn't really connect with his employees. And he was, you know, what most people would associate with being a typical CEO or typical manager. And then uh, one day, one of his executive uh, team members came up to him and and they said, you know, Peter, why are you acting like that? You know, I I know your family. I know that you like hockey. Um, I know about your relationship with your father. It's like, I I know you as a human, but you don't act like a human at work. And Mm -hmm. he said, you know, I I like that, Peter. You You should let people in and let your employees know that you're a real person and that that's who you are and that's what you care about and and just to be who you are. And so Peter made this this drastic change from being this type of a a typical manager to being the same person that he is at home that he is at work. And the way that he described it is that he was kind of like uh, like Jason Bourne, right? He had this this one life that he was leading at home, and he had this completely other life that he had to be uh, that he had to live when he was at work. And eventually, he he brought the two together. And so now he is a fantastic uh, CEO of an organization that. Um, allows himself to be who he is. And I think a really good example of that is uh, an initiative that he launched not too long ago, uh, speaking of collaboration. Um, mm-hmm. They have a collaborative platform that they use to connect all their employees. And not too long ago, the CEO, Peter, went onto their collaborative environment, and he said, I'm giving my employees the right to bitch. And that's exactly what he called it, so I'm quoting him there. Whoa. And he said, tell me everything that you don't like about working at this company. And so he had, you know, first his employees were kind of skeptical. They're like, wait a minute, is this like, uh, you know, the first people that respond are the ones that are going to get fired or, you know, what's going on here? And so, you know, first managers started jumping on board. And eventually, you know, he had hundreds and hundreds of comments from his employees about everything that they didn't like about working there. And these Hmm. were big things like, uh, you know, strategy issues down to small things like um, bringing back hash browns to the breakfast menu cafeteria. (laughs) <laughs> and when I spoke with Peter and I said, hey, you know, who cares about hash browns in the, in the menu cafeteria? That's not going to, you know, do anything meaningful at your company. And he said, you know, that's true. Bringing back hash browns isn't going to do anything meaningful for my company. But what it does do is it allows my employees to know that they can come to me with any problem, no matter how big or how small. And I think that's a fantastic example of how uh, a CEO in an organization has gone about changing their corporate culture. I mean, he... He allows employees to come with him to come to him with anything, and I think that's a great way to build trust. It's a great way to open up. It's a great way to show transparency, and at the end of the day, it dramatically helps with collaboration. And he shared some fascinating numbers um, where you know revenue per employee is much higher at his company versus any of the larger banks that are out there. Um, you know, the huge banks that he competes with. So clearly, there is tangible uh, value and tangible benefit to having a you know. A, a, a better type of corporate culture. Thank you very much. Great case study. Uh, I know that Mike Montalban is going to capture that. I was sending him some notes on Skype. Deb Stambaugh, interested to hear what you have to say on everything that Sarah and Jacob said so far. Yeah. What do you think? So a couple of things. Number one, I, I completely agree. You can't be something that you're not. And I actually always harken back to sort of my mom's advice of, you know, don't try to be like your friend, be, like, be yourself. So I think all too often, especially in where we are today, where there is so much um, prevalence of, you know, who's doing what, who has a great canteen or special perks or what have you, 
um, or who are the, I'll say, the cool kids on the block, um, that often, you know, companies even try to change beyond their own culture, right, beyond actually who they are foundationally versus trying to uh, embrace who they are foundationally. So that's just one piece that I would say as you're looking at your own organizational culture and what you need to change or not change, um, absolutely embrace what's great. Don't try to be something you're not and and make sure that, you know, you really listen to your people and, and you've got to bring them into the dialogue and the discussion. And I would just build on what Peter, what uh, Jacob was talking about mm-hmm. in terms of leadership. And And I would say all too often... I think culture is something that peop- that leaders say is important. I think it's often hard to um, sometimes put put your money where your mouth is. So, for instance, it is equally, you know, it is very acceptable in the business world to spend money on strategy, to spend money on skill building for sales, to spend money on um, R and D. Uh, but I think, but what I've seen personally is that it is often hard to get commitment or the right levels of commitment and really understanding how far that that commitment has to go to actually drive that culture change and to drive an embrace of your true culture so that you can be the most successful that you can be. So I completely agree. It comes down to leadership. It comes mm-hmm. down to your leaders across the board being invested, and you can't have those silent detractors that agree in the meeting and then leave and go out the door. It's going to come back to if your leaders are exhibiting it, the culture can prevail. If your leaders are, you know, are, are not really bringing it to the table, then that's where we're going to, that's where it becomes almost a virus, something that actually starts to pull away from the company, disengages mm-hmm. people because the employees themselves are being asked to do one thing and then they're not seeing it in their leadership. And I think it's a big challenge across leadership overall. Great points, Deb. I'm going to ask Jacob and Sarah, you have anything to say on what Deb just brought in? Because I'm going to go in a different direction with one of Deb's notes in a moment. But anybody want to wrap that up for us? Jacob, any thoughts or Sarah? Yeah, sure. Um, so it's interesting. Uh, you know, there's a book uh, that was written a couple of years ago, the Blue Ocean Strategy Book. And um, I think they identified four areas there that managers and executives, sort of the, the obstacles that they have to overcome. And the first one is cognitive, uh, which is basically you know, thinking differently. The second one is around resources. You know, how do I actually make this happen and fund it um, and, and put the resources necessary to change? The third one is motivation. Like, how do I actually, you know, make myself do it? And the fourth one is company politics. In other words, how do I actually get around that to make it happen? And what's interesting is that, you know, let's say you were the CEO or one of the listeners were the CEO of a company that had a 1,000 people, right? And you had this horrible corporate culture that you were trying to change. It's actually quite a, a daunting task to try to do, right? And it's something that does take time. And that's for a 1,000 people, right? I mean, imagine what it's like for a company that has 100,000 people or 300,000 people. To try mm-hmm. to change that for such a large organization is, um, is a little scary, right? And it's something that takes a long time. So it's, I feel like it's a, it's a tough sell oftentimes for a lot of executives within organizations because they're saying, oh, you know, we have these immediate challenges that we're faced with. We have deadlines. We have, you know, we're struggling financially. And, you know, we don't have time to worry about all this other stuff, which can take, you know, several years to get done. Yep. So it's, uh, it's, it's kind of an interesting paradox for a lot of companies because, you know, you won't find a CEO. Like, you can approach any CEO at a company in the world. No CEO is going to say, oh, we don't want to do that, right? We, we want to stay hierarchical. We want to stay uh, non-communicative and collaborative. I mean, every CEO or good CEO is going to say, yeah, we want that. We believe in that. We should change. 
But then at the same time, you ask those same CEOs, what are you guys doing about it? Some of them are just going to mm-hmm. be like, eh, you know, yeah. I don't know. <laughs> and it's almost that double-edged away. sword, right, Jacob? Because if you don't do it, you're going to still be victim to whatever you're, whatever is happening today, whatever the culture is driving today. If you exactly. do do it, you can be at risk, right? There's a huge risk that comes with that, both for your exactly. reputation, both for your legacy, et cetera, because it's not an immediate fix. And all too often, right, we are also used to that immediate gratification. It's very yep. difficult to get people on board to do it. Yep. And pa- panel, let's be sure we cover the, how this uh, this discussion impacts companies of all sizes before we finish the roundtable. I don't want to do that now, but I'd like to move in a slightly different direction. Deb Stambaugh sent me something that is just jumping off the page at me. She talks about the Frankenstein culture, and she mm-hmm. says, what I mean by this is that we're joining pieces and parts of the organization were paying too much attention to the musical chairs of who's in, who's out, the systems, the financials, and not enough on integrating the culture and the values into the equation. And I also have to add another comment from Deb. She says, culture and values, eh, they sound so fluffy. So Deb, why don't you dive in on either end of that set of comments and tell us where where we should go with this Frankenstein culture and the fluffiness. Talk to me. Absolutely, absolutely. So two parts of that, Bonnie. One is, is that oftentimes, right, especially we are we are, especially, you know, in, in a lot of the westernized countries, we are knowledge companies, right? You are buying not only the assets, the intellectual property that's down on paper, you're buying the people. So the fact that when we're integrating companies, we're bringing um, organizations together through mergers and acquisitions, and we become so fixated on do these systems actually talk to each other, which is hugely important. But at the same time, we're ignoring the culture that people come from as we're bringing them into maybe a larger organization, you're, that's where you get all the attrition. That's where you get all the drop-off. And you're also you're losing, right? You're losing part of what you purchased. So it's actually a loss on your return um, or a loss on your investment, I should say. Mm-hmm. So that's one piece of it where, you know, then you end up and you have enough acquisitions, you end up with what I'm calling here this Frankenstein culture of you've got a piece of a company here and they're still thinking of themselves as that legacy organization. That's how we do it. Um, you've got another piece of the company here, and again, it's the same kind of issue, and then that becomes a barrier to things like collaboration, to things like driving those um, efficiencies and economies of scale and really getting the the real return of why that or why you wanted to purchase that organization in the first place, as well as learning from them. I think all too often we bring these organizations in and expect them to assimilate. Where is, the, where is that back and forth? We are in that age of there is so much um, – there is so much that we can learn from each other, and I think there's an overall cognizance of that. I think we lose it when we bring organizations together. I think the other half of that is that we relegate mm-hmm. it to an HR issue. We think it's fluffy, mm-hmm. not that HR is, when you get down to it, it's actually this is the foundation of, of how you're going to be successful or not successful. And I go back to, I guess, my opening statement is that I think culture and strategy are synonymous. If, you don't, if you're not matching that up, you're missing out. And so you're really not going to be able to achieve your strategy if your culture isn't following through on that. Thank you, Deb. Uh, Sarah Cook, any comments on the Frankenstein culture and the fluffy issue and whether it should be, <laughs> change should be, belong to HR or not? Do you agree, disagree with Deb? Absolutely. Um, Deb, thank you for bringing that up. Those are great observations. And, uh, Bonnie, we've had uh, great success lately working with a a number of large mergers, and it really comes down to intentionality, right? So you need to pause, just like Deb was mentioning around those tech and HR systems, and say, 
how do these two entities work together? And so what can happen, how you can go after it, is to do focus groups, deep dives, employee surveys, those types of things to capture what is the voice and the experience of an employee in these two environments, and then what would what brings out the best of them as you come together. Some things are going to be better suited by taking the larger company's uh, culture and overlaying it onto the incoming organization. The other will be better suited to keep what you're buying, that intellectual property that you need to continue to thrive in order to have all of your investment. And being intentional and saying, these are the things we're choosing. These are how they mix together, and we're going to create perhaps a blended set of values or a blended vision that says who we are together as a group. And just taking that, in, that intentionality in the planning doesn't take a lot more time. It doesn't take a lot more money, but it does require somebody to pause and do the effort. Thank you. Jacob, what do you think? Jacob Morgan, comments on the fluffy? Sure. Um, well, I have a lot of comments, actually. I'm trying to figure out where to start. Um, I, I definitely see the Frankenstein culture as a very, very serious reality for companies that go through mergers and acquisitions. Um, I mean, we had this happen when we were asked to work with a large professional services firm years ago, and they must have gone through, I don't know, six to eight acquisitions over the past few years. And, uh, you know, each acquisition they made, that subsidiary had a different way of doing things. They had their own different corporate culture, and it was a huge, huge struggle for them. So it's definitely a reality for organizations um, that are in that mergers and acquisitions space. Um, and I, so I, I completely agree there, and I definitely think that's a challenge. Um, at the same time, too, I'm trying to think if there are any other organizations any organizations that people would associate as being kind of like a perfect company, right? I, I, mm-hmm. I don't think there is such thing as a perfect company. Um, I think every organization that you look at is going to have some sort of issues and, and some sort of problems. Uh, you know, Valve is a popular gaming company, and they're famous for having a completely flat structure, right? No bosses, no hierarchies, no nothing. And a lot of people thought, hey, you know, that's a dream place to work, right? I do everything that I want. I'm passionate about everything. Um, but then the reality is that some people within that organization don't like that type of environment because they say that informal hierarchies get formed and cliques start to form and it becomes mm-hmm. a little bit like high school. So it's, it's, it's challenging, right? I don't think there is a perfect scenario um, for any organization. I think that the important thing for organizations is to continuously be adapting and looking at what working and, and what isn't. And the best way to do that is to be able to run experiments and to be able to run those experiments frequently. I mean, that's something that Gary Hamill talks about um, often. So I think organizations need to get into that mindset of, you know, there isn't necessarily an end state, but it's all about how do we keep adapting, how do we keep changing, how do we keep figuring out what's working and what isn't, and how do we, you know, keep being able to move and, and, and staying agile. Thank you, Jacob. I just looked up Gary Hamill. I just wanted to know for myself. It's H-A-M-E-L. Dr. Gary P. Hamill is an American management expert, founder of Strategos, S-T-R-A-T-E-G-O-S, an international management consulting firm based in Chicago, age 60. How about that? Thank you for the reference. Now I know, too. Jacob Morgan, I'd like to go in a slightly different direction and pick up some points you sent me in your notes before the show, or is that okay with you? Sure. You're ready. I know you are. You say the flow of who dictates how work gets done is flipped. 
In the old days, it was guided by the organization, who was the C-level, who were the stakeholders. They passed it down to the managers, down to the employees, down, down, down. What do we used to say? The buck stops here, and it keeps on flowing downhill. And there's another word I can't use on the radio of what flows downhill. Sorry. And now you say today, employees are starting to guide how work gets done, and they're passing it up to the managers, who are passing it up to the organizations. So the employees are helping to get it done, and not just the organizational structure. Can you explain that in? In, in well, in your own words, these were your own words, but explain it a little differently so we can get the full gist of this, please, Jacob, and then we'll have Sarah and Deb chime in. Go ahead. Sure, sure. So this is one of the big things that I think is driving the future of work, and it's one of the reasons why I say work as we know it or as we knew it is dead. And so I think you touched on a lot of it, right? So the way that a lot of things used to get done within organizations is that there used to be you know, small teams or small committees or C-level executives at the very top of the company that used to decide how work should get done. What are the policies going to be? What's the strategy going to be? What direction are we going, et cetera? Um, once this group of people makes this decision, they pass their, um, their orders down to the managers, right, the, the generals, and they say, look, this is what we, the supreme commanders of the company, have decided, and this is what you, as your team leaders, must do. And those mid-level managers or those team leaders would then go to their employees and they say, hey, our supreme commanders have decided this, they have told us we must do this, and therefore you as employees must do this. Mm-hmm. And, and that's how it used to work, right? It used to be this kind of passing down from the top down to the very bottom. And now what's happening is that we're seeing this big shift where employees are saying, actually, this is what we value, this is how we want to work, these are the types of things that we believe in, um, go pass that up. And so employees are bringing this into the organization. Um, they're passing that to mid-level managers. Mid-level managers are they're passing them up to the, um, the corporate senior-level executives, and the organization has to change. And there are five reasons for why that's happening, or five trends um, which are shaping the future of work. The first one is new behaviors entering organizations. Um, new behaviors are things like being able to build communities, being able to access information, uh, all that sort of stuff. New technologies, uh, you know, that were originally first driven by things like Facebook and Twitter, which are now being driven by collaborative technologies. We're seeing millennials becoming the majority of the workforce. Uh, mobility and globalization. And so these are five trends which today are dramatically empowering employees and completely shifting the flow of who is guiding how work gets done. And employees are far more powerful today than they ever were. And I think Dan Pink had a quote where he said, um, talented people need organizations far less uh, than organizations need talented people. In other words, the, the people themselves are, are now able to have more power and dictate how they want to work and who they want to work for. And so that's causing a very, very... Uh, dramatic shift within a lot of organizations today. Thank you, Jacob. I have a question for you, and I'm going to ask the ladies to chime in as well. The question is, you mentioned millennials. Of course you did. We talk about them over and over again on so many episodes of HR Trends. My question to you is, is this homogenizing or leveling across the entire workforce? Or is this, in other words, how do you hire the right employees to drive this change from the bottom up, if you will? Are we only looking at the millennials or the Gen Y segment who are brave and bold and outspoken and assertive and want more from their workplace? Or are we seeing this in the 30s, 40s, 40s, 50s, and up into the baby boomers? And those of us who are boomers, we just refuse to retire. I have a newsflash for you. So the question, speaking, one of my guests on one of the shows 
said to me, when will the baby boomers retire? And I said, no plan soon. And she was like, really, Bonnie? Yes, really. So my question is, how do you bring the employees in? And is this leveling across the entire workforce? Or are we just talking about the youngest members? Jacob, a quick answer first. And then I'd like to have Sarah and Deb give their POV. So go ahead, Jacob. Sure. Well, I'm, I've, I've never heard so, uh, somebody use so many positive words about millennials before. Usually when I hear about millennials, it's, uh, uh, it's, it's a negative. So that, that's, that's great. Um, but you're absolutely right. Um, so it's not just the fact that it's millennials in the workforce, right? I mean, if you were to get rid of every millennial that your organization has, you will still find plenty of employees that care about doing meaningful, meaningful work, that care about flexible work environments, that care about community and sustainability, um, that care about more real-time feedback. So it's not just millennials. The, the reason why the discussion is being focused on millennials isn't just because of the fact that they are millennials. It is the fact that by 2020, the majority of the workforce is going to be comprised of millennials. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's because there's going to be so many of them that is acting as a catalyst for organizations. Not just the fact that they exist, but the fact that there's going to be so many of them with these types of expectations and attitudes and values. And so that's going to force companies, whether they like it or not, to change. But um, as you touched on, it's, you know, these values aren't just uh, unique to millennials. They're, they're shared across many different generations within the workplace. Thank you. Deb Stambaugh, your POV on, on the impact of millennials. Are they teaching the older generations how to stick up for their own values and their own needs? or how, Which way is it going, Deb? What do you, you see? Know what, you know what I like to say, Bonnie, is that I think millennials were the generation that have been smart enough to voice it. So I think ah. that, I think that um, Jacob is right. I don't think millennials are, you know, have a corner of the market on finding meaning and purpose in what they do. Um, I think that they've been a generation that's been smart enough to make it part of their requirements. And I think it's also it's opened the door for a lot of other people that are older than millennials, like myself, um, to really, you know, to get involved in that conversation and make that par- a core part of, you know, what's important to me. I will challenge it, though, uh, slightly, um, Jacob, in terms of the flow of work. You know, you look at organizations like Yahoo or, who are actually pulling back the reins of sort of freedom of, you know, where you work and how your work gets done. I think it's moving, I think in some spaces, especially smaller, more nimble organizations, it can move much faster, more forward-thinking organizations. I think there are going to be pockets, though, that are going to continue with, hierarchical tops down, and either they're going to learn a hard lesson or they're going to find a way through. Hmm. Sarah Cook, I have to have your POV here before Jacob responds to Deb. Got to get you in there because your company is great places to work. So which side of the fence are you on? You're on the middle. Where are you? Talk to me. So what you're talking about around um, two-way communication, right, bottoms up as well as tops down, is absolutely correct in the sense that that's crucial to be a great workplace. It's crucial to have a great culture. You have to hear from the bottom up. Um, Whether or not that is focused on millennials, I think, um, is not true. We've been doing this work for 25 years without millennials, (laughs) and Mm -hmm. uh, and that work has been focused on creating trust in the work environment. What is different about millennials is because of the Internet access that they've enjoyed, the Web 2.0 environment that they've enjoyed, they didn't know any other way. And so they come to the table assuming, making those assumptions that it will be this way. Every All the generations prior to them 
new other ways where you had to ask permission. You had to go to a library and get a library card in order to access information. Like you had to take hurdles. And so to them, it's more of a privilege or something you ask for when you get to a certain rank or a new way of working that they are becoming exposed to and beginning to ask for. But it doesn't mean that they didn't want it all along or that they didn't have it or in some environments all along. Uh, you asked the question of do we how do we hire to drive change from mm-hmm. the bottom up? Yes. And, and my response to that is the most important step is that the top becomes unafraid to lose control. Ooh. So the top has to allow those people to live into the space that can be created for them. And that's where we get into the dynamic. I mean, people that were hired in from Gen X and prior generations wanted this same level of contribution and control, but the system wasn't built that way. Some of them chose and took it. Some left and did their own thing. Others found a way to work around it or just, you know, created, became part of the system. So the people at the top have to have that trusting environment. They have to choose and make that intentional choice to create the space and allow the individuals to live into it. Thank you very much. You know what? We're about ready to go to break in a minute and a half. I'm going to throw that minute and a half right up, toss it in the air, and ask who, uh, well, Sarah Cook just spoke. So Deb Stambor or Jacob, who wants to take that minute and a half before we go to break? Any comments in light of what Sarah Cook just talked about? Deb, anything you want to add? Sure. So I think, you know, I, Sarah, I, I actually really liked what you were saying about, um, you know, really being able to, open that space and, and have that intentional change. And I think it goes back to trust, not only of the leaders themselves, right, employees and their leaders, but the leaders of the employees. I think all too often we we forget, right, that our employees are, you know, adults. We are responsible. We are, um, you know, we are, we are invested in the organization as well. And I think they're to, as the trust grows and where you see that great trust from the leadership down to the employees or, laterally to the employees, ideally it's not just straight down, um, that uh, you do get that, you do get those open spaces and you do get those opportunities. The other thing I will say about that is that oftentimes you, as an employee, you have to have the courage to take it So mm-hmm. and have the courage to ask forgiveness at the end um, uh-huh. instead of permission at the beginning. And I think, you know, you're where, where a lot of us in our thir- late 30s, 40s, 50s into the boomers you did grow up in the organizations having to ask for, for permission because there was not that access to information. There was not that openness of, you know, being able to find out everything about an organization from the outside within 30 seconds of something being available. Mm-hmm. So to be able to um, really have that courage uh, is, is something that, you know, has to go both ways, leadership as well as the employees themselves. Thank you, Deb. That's a great point. And I have one note from Sarah Cook in her notes to me. She said, if you're not sure how to walk this path of changing to change with your organization's culture, where how do you show up, how do you interact with others, and you just don't get it, which she says also will impact your personal as well as your professional life. Here's the advice from Sarah Cook. Not sure how to walk this path? Get a coach to help you along the way. Great words of wisdom. Thank you, Sarah Cook. Guess what? We're going to take a break. My panel's working so hard. Great conversation. We're keeping Mike Montalban's finger 
Singer's very busy tweeting all these words of wisdom at hashtag SAP Radio. I'm going to give Jacob Morgan, Sarah Cook, and Deb Stambaugh about 90 seconds break. We're going to come back with a crystal ball round. I'm going to ask them if we met again in the year 2020, because we all know 2020 is hindsight. Uh-huh. And I like the way Barbara Walter always said 2020, so I'm doing it now. We're going to come back and find out their predictions. We'll start with Jacob. Two minutes on the clock. Sarah Cook, two minutes, and round it out with Deb Stambaugh. So don't even think of touching that mouse, that app, that dial. Brad out. The business community's first choice in Internet talk radio. Voice America Business Network. With companies like yours competing aggressively for top talent today, HR tactics must be comprehensive and precise. Today's reality, your HR department is faced with the demands of a multi-generational and globalized workforce, diversity and inclusion policies, work-life integration challenges, and more. The bottom line, you need to attract and retain the best fit talent to support your strategies and goals, optimize your employee engagement, and become an industry-leading employer of choice. HR Trends with Game Changers is presented by SAP. Visit www.sap.com. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. You're enjoying HR Trends with Game Changers, presented by SAP. Email your comments and questions to bonnie.d.gram at sap.com. And you're invited to tweet during and after the live show at Twitter, hashtag SAPRADIO. Now, let's get back to HR Trends with Game Changers. Here we are, and it's time for the crystal ball round. That means predictions. I've asked my panels to look ahead, find the crystal ball during the break, and see blue skies, cloudy skies six years from now. Hindsight is 2020, so let's fast forward to 2020. Jacob Morgan at Chess Media. Jacob, in one sentence, what does Chess Media Group do? And then you have exactly two minutes for predictions. So give us a one-liner, head a big 50,000 feet, what is Chess Media, and then predictions. Go. Sure. We help organizations understand what the future of work is going to look like, um, and we have the FOW community where we connect a lot of these companies together. Thank you. Good. All right. Predictions? Tell me. So it's uh, it's kind of an interesting but a tough thing to try to look at, right, because, you know, five, six years is a long time. And so looking forward, I'm trying to when it comes to the future of work, I, I don't think that is a theme or a topic that's ever going to die, right? I mean, I think mm-hmm. in five to six years, we will be looking at things that are coming, you know, even further down the road. Uh, self-driving cars, we're going to look at the Internet of Things in the workplace. We're going to look at all sorts of different things that are happening. So I think the conversation is just going to keep evolving into what's happening next, right? Where, where are we going after this? What, what's the next technology coming into the workplace? How can we keep improving our companies? And if you look back five to six years ago, um, a lot of our organizations haven't changed that much. I mean, we're starting to um, look at and value different things, but the conversations themselves aren't that different, right? I mean, five, six years ago, we were still talking about what the future of work is going to look like, how corporate culture is going to impact the workplace, um, you know, what are employees going to look like. So I think that type of a conversation is, is never going to change. I, I think that's always going to be something that uh, organizations are concerned with. I think the landscape 
that companies are going to be faced with in five to six years is going to be different, right? Because in five to six years from now, millennials will be the majority of the workforce. We're going to see uh, things like the Internet of Things in the workplace. I think we're going to see more freelancers in the workplace and, and freelancer environments. Um, I think we'll see more women in senior manage, uh, management roles. So we're going to have a very different type of organization that we're going to be looking at. But the conversation itself around how do we keep changing and adapting and evolving, I think is going to be an ongoing one. Okay. Thank you very much. Appreciate that. Something to look forward to. That means we can meet again in six years and continue the conversation, but I hope it's sooner. Absolutely. Let's Thank you, Jacob. You've been wonderful. I'll say thank you formally in a minute. Sarah Cook at Great Place to Work. And I want to do a shout-out to uh, China Gorman, who's been on the show several times. That's I believe she founded the company, so please tell her we said hello from SAP Game Changers Radio. Sarah Cook, what's on the horizon for you? Two minutes, go. Yeah, um, so on the horizon, I think uh, when I normally get this question from you, the 2020 question, gosh, it seems like really far away, doesn't it? Um, mm-hmm. But I just went to an innovation conference uh, two weeks ago called the Front End of Innovation, filled with uh, chief innovation officers, and I was shocked to find the same conversation occurring as when I was deeply involved in innovation about five years ago. Mm. Um, so I'm a little bit disheartened in something that's just six years out, that perhaps we'll be having similar conversations. Um, however, there are some things that are coming that I think can't, continue to be ignored. So we're going to see an uptick in the integration of culture into the conversations around strategy, R&D, and those other core business functions. It can't be, as Deb said earlier today, sitting in the house of HR. It's just not going to work that way. And mm-hmm. if R&D, for example, is thinking about how how do I get great development and great research done, they need to look at how their culture supports those behaviors that, that that result in the innovations that they're looking for. If they aren't having that conversation together, then they will fail. And guess what? They're asking the exact same question. So being at that conference two weeks ago made it so incredibly clear to me that that organizations, these organizations, the innovation groups are having the exact same conversation that the HR groups are having, but in just a completely different city at a completely different week. Um, so it was a bit shocking to hear um, the exact same conversation in two places of groups that for some reason just aren't connecting. And so that hopefully is the value that we can bring into the world on top of the work that we're already doing around building a better society by helping companies transform their workplace. Now I want to bring those two parties together. And when that conversation becomes so clear that we have – I don't think we need to have chief culture officers. I don't think it's about that, but it's more mm-hmm. it's more infused in the organization so that everyone is recognizing that culture can be key to their success. Thank you very much. And I want to read a quick comment here. Deb, I'm going to get to you in just a second. I won't eat up too much of your time. Uh, when I researched the Peter Drucker quote that I used to open the show, Culture Eats Strategy for Breakfast, I was led to uh, a quick case study here about Ford Motor Company, where Mark Fields in 2006 popularized this because did you know, any of you know that this phrase hangs in, in the Ford Motor Company war room and it's been there for years? He was faced with laying off 30,000 employees and the culture was bitter, full of dis- 
distrust, fear, and people didn't know what was happening. They felt betrayed. They didn't know what to do and whether to trust the company. In four years, he turned it around through culture, and now it's a culture of creativity, innovation, and responsibility across the organization. The rest is history. Deb Stambaugh, what are your predictions, please? Go ahead. Two minutes. So my predictions are really that I think the big winners are going to be those where culture, just like sales skills, product development, what have you, has been nurtured and celebrated and rewarded. It's going to be those winners are going to be those that are promoting and driving succession based upon alignment to culture and the behavior um, that goes with that, both professionally um, in terms of your personal interactions as well as the types of decisions you make. I would actually go so far as to say it's not only going to be part of the business school conversation and not just one course on organizational management on the side. It's going to be a core part from, the, from business schools all the way to Wall Street and even so far as maybe valuations based upon culture. So people are not going to just be talking about brand value. We're going to be talking about culture value. And I think that's going to be a, a huge winner in terms of how people select companies, how people choose to work with different organizations, and it's going to be a definer about how uh, – you know, the market continues to move forward and who actually collaborates and who doesn't collaborate. Thank you, Deb. A question for you. I'm just going to use 30 seconds with you. A question is, we talked about, Jacob mentioned that millennials are going to be become the main force in the workforce as they get older, and that, that part of the culture will, will bubble up into the, I think, 50% of the workforce in a number of years. The question is, will they become the leaders who understand what has to happen to make organizations more conversational, collaborative, and have the bubbling up and down both ways of the conversation about culture? Deb, do you see the millennials ascending to the C-suite very quickly in today's culture? What do you think? I think it'll be a balance, honestly, Bonnie. I think there are a lot of people, as we talked about earlier, that are, you know, have this mindset and that that are going to be in leadership positions and are already adopting uh, a two-way conversation from a leadership perspective. I think the millennials, you know, just from sheer volume, will absolutely see a lot of them in leadership, and ideally they're going to bring those ideals and values with them that you Thank know, they don't you. sort of lose, lose it as they go. Thanks, Deb. I need to wrap up here. Uh, Bonnie D. Graham, this has been HR Trends with Game Changers. Thank you to Jacob Morgan at Chess Media Group. Sarah Cook, a great place to work. Deb Stambaugh at SAP. Tomorrow is Wednesday. That means it's Coffee Break with Game Changers, 8 a.m. Pacific. We're going to be wrapping up Thursday, 7 a.m. Pacific, our series called The Future of Business with Game Changers. It's going to be a four-parter with about eight, four segments with about eight guests. You don't want to miss that one. Next Monday, I'll be back with Financial Excellence with Game Changers. Here's my shout-out. Mike Maltabon, thank you. Carolyn Cahote. Brad and the Business Channel team. Call to action. Fasten your seatbelts. What are you waiting for? Go out and be a game changer today. Thanks for tuning in. Talk to you tomorrow on Coffee Break. Bye-bye. Thanks again for tuning in to HR Trends with Game Changers, presented by SAP. The best-run businesses run SAP. To keep the conversation going, tweet your questions and comments to Twitter, hashtag SAPRADIO. Please join host Bonnie D. Graham again next Tuesday morning at 9 a.m. Pacific Time, 12 noon Eastern Time on the Business Channel. We wish you a positively game-changing week.